Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching from Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. But today, I'm in Laos. And I am speaking today uh, with one of the great entrepreneurs uh, in the United States. Let's please welcome one of the world's leading experts in entrepreneurship, Jay Rogers, author of The Bet and Entrepreneur's All-In Strategy to Win in Business and also founder of Biz Owners Ed. So, Jay, welcome. It's great to have you. Glad to be aboard, and I always uh, look forward to an opportunity to help entrepreneurs move forward. Well, I found your book a very easy read with lots of substance. Of course, I like people who are really experienced uh, writing these kinds of books. Uh, so let's start with this. Uh, can you talk about your background and how you got to where you're at? Well, probably uh, from the entrepreneurial standpoint, I would like to open with uh, Probably my first significant entrepreneurial experience started, uh, I was 14 and hired on as a stable boy uh, with the YWCA camp in Omaha, Nebraska, Camp Brewster. They ran their camp the first half of the summer and leased it to the Jewish Community Center the second half. And so while I, I was the only guy at the YW, and the Jewish Community Center uh, brought me on, and I was the only Gentile there. Fortunately, they were unable to find a Jewish cowboy. So uh, <laughs> there's not many that, of those. The second year, in addition to working the program, they allowed me to furnish three of the horses they leased for the program. And the third year, I was able to uh, run the instruction program and furnish all the horses for both camps. So. That was my entrepreneurial, first significant entrepreneurial uh, activity. So you, like most people, um, especially of the generation before 2000, worked for corporations. In fact, were expected to work for one company your entire life. I remember my dad used to say, you know, if you left more than one company, you were a job hopper. Why didn't you like working for a big company like your past employer, Kodak? Well... Kodak was an incredible experience. I, I learned a great deal. When I went to work for Kodak, they had 40,000 employees worldwide. They were the king of the mountain. And uh, they uh, interviewed me on campus, but told me I had to write a letter to the company. Uh, and I knew I graduated in seven semesters without summer school. So they didn't have as many people interviewing on campus as they do in the normal uh, graduation time. I was January, but uh, I wrote the letter to Kodak and, and kind of shot for the moon. My letter had in capital pages, capital letters at the top of the page. I can bring more to Kodak than a college education. 
the, the first line said, while operating the south end of a northbound pitchfork, I had a great deal of time for meditation. Uh, the, the result was uh, they had a program where they hired six to eight students straight out of undergraduate school and put them in a two-year uh, executive training program I called the Fair-Haired Boy Program. But when I sent my letter in, the advertising department read it and agreed to pay my salary for the two-year program. It was an incredible experience. I worked at the World's Fair in New York, uh, traveled uh, with the sales department and, and worked under the top executives in all the various areas of the company. Uh, when I was interviewed, uh, I also was offered a job by Otto Stuick, uh, who interviewed me on behalf of AT&T. And Otto said, Jay, I'm going to offer you a job despite the fact that I believe that within seven or eight years, uh, you will uh, be out on your own as an entrepreneur. And, and he was dead right. It was seven and a half years. So what made you, though, leave big corporate? I mean, you were a fast riser at Kodak. What, what made you decide to go out on your own? Well, uh, I, this will come up again, I'm sure, while we talk. But, but the, you, somewhere uh, I've been asked, you know, how do you teach or train an entrepreneur? And I sincerely believe you don't. I believe entrepreneurs are born. A good example, uh, I'm sure you're well acquainted with all the great things and teachings that Gino Wickman has provided to the entrepreneurial world. Uh, and, and Gino, in his book, Entrepreneurial Leap, uh, I think it's chapter five, has an assessment that you self-assessment you can take to determine if you are an entrepreneur. Uh, some of the profiles that you can take. One of them is Culture Index, which I think is outstanding. Another one's Dish, uh, Disc, I guess. Uh, but entrepreneurs have a real high score as visionaries. They have a real way below normal as their patience is rated. Uh, most of us don't have much capability under the line of detail. Uh, but, but again, uh, I, I just think I was born to be an entrepreneur and uh, it was the only way I could move ahead. Uh, what did you learn from your time at Kodak that helped you as an entrepreneur and what skills can large companies help aspiring entrepreneurs develop that will be of value? Well, I really felt that the time I spent at Kodak was was probably as valuable or more valuable than the college education uh, because you got exposed to so many facets of business at, at high levels and, and in big ways. But the single best thing I took away from uh, my time at Kodak were the relationships that I established with my fellow Kodak employees and, and with my Kodak customers. Uh, when I started my first uh, major entrepreneurial venture, uh, my uh, ranch land, which was a corporate dude ranch that I set aside two months each summer to operate as a summer youth horsemanship program. 
my Kodak employees, fellow employees, and my Kodak customers, uh, I went to and raised the money to start that uh, venture. And, and most of those stayed with me uh, for many generations. Uh, but uh, I guess I was wondering about the training program that you went through. Are the training programs at large corporations helpful in terms of preparing you to uh, for entrepreneurship? Uh, I, their two-year program was really uh, on-job training. It wasn't a sit-down-in-the-classroom program, and uh, it was very helpful. But, but again, uh, the thing that was the most valuable were, were the contacts I made. Uh, I, I met a, a fellow that had a, a gold stamp uh, program in Oklahoma City during the program. Uh, he later uh, became a good friend. I did my military mandatory service at uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Spent my weekends with he and his wife at, in Oklahoma City. They were uh, incredibly gracious. And Roy later uh, called me to give me an opportunity to invest in an oil well, which I did, and, and that well sent me checks for over 40 years. So uh, the contacts, I think, were the most valuable thing I took from Kodak. So uh, talk about what is Biz Owners and why did you start it? Well, uh, Ronald Reagan says it best, uh, and his quote is, uh, and, and let me see if I can read Entrepreneurs and their small enterprises are responsible for almost all the economic growth in the United States, quote Ronald Reagan. Uh, I just felt that our country was moving away from realizing the importance of entrepreneurs and their part in growing our country and, and the foundation of our country that was built by them uh, Craig Hall, who many will know, uh, now a billionaire, I think he has about 100,000 apartments around the country uh, and uh, 1,000 plus acres in, in the top of the wine country in Napa. Uh, Craig, by the way, uh, was a millionaire on his own doing uh, in his late 20s. He was a billion dollars in debt uh, at uh, his 30s and uh, recovered from that without bankruptcy and is today again a billionaire. I'm very proud to say Craig is going to be uh, speaking at our business owners program uh, next year in January. And our, our people that are invited as mentors to speak uh, not only have to have taken a startup or a stagnant company to uh, mega millions, they have to give of their time and their knowledge. And then just to prove they're serious, they write a $5,000 check to our nonprofit. And again, Biz Owners Ed doesn't have any competitors uh, because our only goal is to help serious committed entrepreneurs grow their companies, create jobs, and, and strengthen our foundations in our country. Uh, how many chapters do you have? Uh, of Biz Owners Ed? 
Yes. Well, at this point, we only offer the program in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, along those lines, uh, during the 10-week program, uh, which runs every Tuesday from 4 to 8 p.m., uh, we had a gentleman that was in our class that lived in Florida. He bought himself uh, 10 round-trip tickets to attend the 10 sessions and his number one man in his company so he could sit in the audience and, and learn from it as he did. Uh, we had made an arrangement with EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, to uh, test by uh, streaming our program into several of their chapters. But as and at that time, the international CEO of EO uh, was... Uh, Miss uh, Santos, and she's a great lady, but they had only volunteers on their committee to interface with us, and it became obvious they needed some of their staff, so I pulled the plug on that program for the moment. We may move in that direction again later. Uh, we've got a, a great deal of uh, funding available. Uh, not only from myself, but from many others. Uh, so you're on. So essentially, you um, work with entrepreneurs from around the country for that program. Absolutely, and and uh, like I say, we have no competitors because anybody that's interested in helping serious, committed entrepreneurs grow their companies and create jobs, we are willing to help uh, with knowledge, with money if necessary. And they don't even have to tell people we help them. So why did you write this book and why did you pick that title? Well, uh, the book I wrote because uh, at this point in my life, as has been true for the last 10 or 15 years, uh, my only goal is, is to help entrepreneurs grow their companies and create jobs and strengthen our great country. And, and incidentally, I mentioned Craig Hall and, and his book, uh, Boom. He points out uh, that even though we get a lot of publicity, uh, entrepreneurship has dwindled to where the startups have dropped about 50% over the past years and how critical entrepreneurs are to, to the country. Uh, there are over 3,200 counties in the United States or county equivalents, such as parishes, whatever they call their geographic divisions in states. Uh, how many of those do you think account for half of the startups in the nation? I, I, I believe. Take, take I, a shot, Mark. I think you, I think you even said in the book, I think it was like 20%. No, it's 20 counties. Oh, 20 counties. 6%. Yeah. Frightening. Uh, and uh, I'm proud to say five of those counties are in Texas. But it, it, we just have to go back to realizing that we need to support. Uh, and I started Biz Owners Ed because I asked myself, what can I do in a small way to try to counter the fact that entrepreneurs uh, are facing bigger challenges? And at that time, and, and 
I think we started 13 years ago conceptually and then opened the first program uh, in uh, a year after that. But I, I just felt it was critical that we find a way to do something to support serious committed entrepreneurs. And, and I guess that's that's the answer. Uh, when you have a new business idea, what's the process uh, you went through to, to uh, what, what's the process you went through uh, to see if it made sense before you invested time and money in it? Because you had looked at a lot of different ventures. You started a, a variety of different types of ventures. What's the process you went through before you really started to make a serious commitment? Well, I, I guess I'd like to tell the story. Uh, I went to Harvard's OPM program, Owners and Presidents Management Program. It's a three-year program that you go three weeks each year for three years. When I attended uh, 30 years ago, there were 86 from, I think, uh, 20 some countries uh, in the class. And I was, my first year, I had just decided that I would start a company uh, that provided, uh, uh, worked with DUI, DWI, uh, where the court, the judge had ordered them to put a device on their car they had to blow into and pass a breath alcohol test before they could start their car. Uh, and I hadn't started the company yet, but I got it pretty well set in my mind. Uh, at Harvard, I talked to about a dozen of my fellow students and without exception, none of them thought the idea should ever float. So uh, I say that because the first month I was open, I thought maybe they were right. I had in a month, I had one customer and $60 revenue. But I'm awfully proud to say that today that company is the world's largest in 18 countries with a million eight hundred thousand customers. So I, I think entrepreneurs take calculated risk. But if you want to sit around waiting for someone to tell you how brilliant you are, uh, you're, you're probably not an entrepreneur. <laughs> so you don't have a structured process. You look at it and make an evaluation based on what you know about uh, the industry and maybe gut instinct based on experience. Well, I guess one of the the rules of thumb, if you will, that I use. And, and I learned this from the man that at that time ran the Harvard program. Although I'll tell you, most of the benefit of that program uh, has come from uh, my fellow students from around the world. But Marty Marshall was in charge of OPM. And Marty made a statement that has stayed with me uh, throughout my career. And that was, you cannot create a market. You can only serve an underserved or unserved market. And, and a, a great example of that, uh, think back on the Ford Etzel that they spent billions bringing onto the marketplace and there wasn't really a market for it. Uh, so, so that is one thing, you know, is, am I serving a market that needs serving? 
uh, Levi back in California started out, uh, he realized that miners were going through their pants uh, zip quick daily uh, with the work they did and the way they used their legs and their work. And uh, so he made pants out of canvas. He found out that was too stout a material. Uh, he then turned to uh, uh, denim uh, and uh, the rest is history. It's a famous product for all working people now. You have a list of five elements to a successful negotiation. Uh, one is the best deals you make are with smart people. Why do you say that? Well, I, I like to use the analogy that uh, it's much better to win, or pardon me, to lose 59% and the other guy gets 61% than it is to win 51% to 49%. And, and all I'm saying here is that when you deal with smart people, you find ways to create more value on both sides of the fence, uh, not to get deep into it, but a good example is a shopping center where the customer, uh, the retailer rents space. Uh, does he need signage? Does he need uh, traffic location? Does he need... Uh, a long-term or a short-term lease? Does the shopping center owner need uh, those same items in reverse? Uh, if they get together and study their real needs, they may find that uh, the leasee can, can lease uh, less traffic-heavy uh, spot and, and still not hurt his needs. Uh, and he may not even need much signage because people seek him out. He just wants to be in a convenient location. But when, when you deal with smart people, you invariably put together a better deal. And if you think win-win, uh, like I said, it's much, much better to lose 59% to 61 because you've created 20% more value in the deal. If someone asked you, what's the profile of an entrepreneur, what would you tell them? Well, uh, I'd, I'd like to tell them, I, I guess, number one, the, there is a profile. But uh, I think many people ask, uh, how do you become an entrepreneur? And in my personal opinion, you don't. I, I believe entrepreneurs are born. Um, and, and Gino Wickman, uh, who wrote Traction, 100,000 Companies Follow, and wrote the EOS system, uh, which thousands now teach, uh, also believes that. His, his book, as I may have mentioned earlier, Entrepreneurs, Entrepreneurial Leap, um, has a, a self-assessment that you can take on in Chapter 5, and it'll tell you if you're an uh, basically an entrepreneur, if, if you're a visionary, if you're impatient, if you're low on detail, uh, I think that's a great thing for anyone thinking of, of jumping into the entrepreneurial world to take. Uh, and it doesn't mean you can't run a successful business if you're not uh, a natural born entrepreneur, but it does mean you have to be extremely careful 
to surround yourself with the people that cover the areas that you don't strengthen in. I have a question from the audience. Can you talk about some of the major struggles you faced and ways you overcame them? Boy, that's a heavy question. <laughs> uh, I guess, number one, uh, I've had a lot of uh, struggles, probably, but uh, I've never looked at them as struggles. I've looked at them as opportunities. Uh, uh, one of the sections of my book is, is entitled uh, My Most Successful Failure. And, and so I guess attitude plays a big role in that. It, it doesn't matter if you win or lose in a given setting. If you learn from it, it can be valuable. Uh, that was a story that involved uh, the Calgary Stampede that uh, is too long to get into, but I know they'll enjoy reading it in my book. <laughs> um, you owned a horse ranch, I guess, slash farm. Uh, what did you do? Why did you do it? And what did you learn from it that helped you in future ventures? Because that was kind of your first deal. That was my first big deal. Uh, and uh, that's the one I left Kodak uh, uh, and uh, a great future with, with Kodak to start where I put all the, all the marbles on the table and, and went for broke. And uh, one of the great things that happened uh, we, I bought the ranch. I had, I brought on investors, uh, both Kodak uh, employee friends and Kodak customer friends, and they funded about eighty percent of it. But uh, and, and one of the, the lessons that I try to emphasize is be careful when you put together your investors that you don't uh, get one investor. Because if you do, uh, as they say, he who has the gold makes the rules. So I've always been careful to get a group of investors that weren't united together as a, as a group uh, and make sure that, uh, that I controlled the destiny and, and someone else did not. Uh, and, and now... Uh, take me back to your original question. I got sidetracked. Uh, I said, what did you learn from that first big venture, the horse farm ranch? What did you learn from it and how did it help you with future ventures? Well, that first venture, I put together the investors. Uh, and, and one of the things I did at that time, we didn't have an LLC option, which is a great one. But uh, in, in wanting to make sure, even though I only put up uh, about 20% of the money that I had control, uh, I found uh, in, in working to make sure that happened, the sub S allows you to have, and, and like I say today, you can do it probably easier with an LLC. But at that time, in a sub S, you could have both voting and non-voting shares. And so when I put my investor group together, uh, I had all voting shares and my investors had 
a combination of voting and non-voting that the total group of investors had about 55% of the vote. And, and I personally had 45, even though I only had 20% of the money in the project. And what I told them was that whereas they were investing money, I was betting my career and my future on this project. And I felt I needed to have control. And yet, because I respected them all as, as astute business people, that if they uh, totally agreed that I was wrong, there was even a chance they might be right and therefore they could uh, outvote me. But I didn't need many of them to join me to, to keep control and I never had a problem. Uh, and it worked very well. And, and and I recommend if you're the big player and, and the other people are bringing money and, and you're bringing your career, uh, you need to structure the deal where you have some control and you need to prove you deserve it by putting your uh, all the chips you have on the table. How do people recognize within themselves if they have the entrepreneurial gene? Because I've heard people say, ah, I just don't think I'm like a, an entrepreneur, but they have good ideas. They're smart. They're capable. How do you know this? Well, again, I, I just think you have to uh, uh, either take a profile like Culture Index uh, or, or take Gino's self-assessment in his book, Entrepreneurial Leak. Uh, to make that determination. Uh, his his uh, book, Entrepreneurial Leap, in fact, uh, I've got one on my credenza here, uh, and he's got a newer version out, but I think it may still be chapter five that, that you do a self-assessment. But I think that's very important because if you're not an entrepreneur and you try to function like an entrepreneur, you can have a miserable life. So you need to really make that determination. And if you want to go into business and aren't an entrepreneur, you need to very carefully, again, as I mentioned earlier, surround yourself with the, the kind of people you need to be successful. You write, uh, your ideal investors will bring more than money. What do you mean? Well, uh, they may be an attorney that can help you. They may be a CPA that can help you. Uh, hopefully, they've been a highly successful in, in business. And so they've been down roads that you haven't been down. Uh, I'll try to keep it short, but uh, I guess a good example, uh, when I was uh, taking my private pilot's license, uh, as I signed up, there was another man signing up. We we joined together and decided we'd take our lessons together. He'd sit in the front for his lesson. I'd sit in the back and learn, and we'd switch places, and we could do our ground study work together. Uh, about six weeks in, uh, I went up for our lessons, and the instructor said, well, George has got problems today at home, and he can't make it. We went out and, and did our training and came back in and as was customary, did a couple touch and goes. And when we stopped uh, on the second touch and go, he said, when you stop, pull over to the side. And he, I did. He said, Jay, I'm getting out and you're going to solo. 
I said, my God, I can't solo. And George has made every landing perfectly. And you haven't let him solo. And I've screwed up every landing I've tried. He said, you're absolutely right. You've made about every mistake known to man. But the reason you're soloing is that I know that if you get in trouble, you'll resolve it and make a safe landing. I have no idea what George will do uh, if he has a problem. And until I do, he won't solo. Uh, it, it reminds you that the people that, that have done it and know what they're doing may take a much more intelligent and broader view of a setting than you do. And it's why it's so critical to be sure you have mentors or coaches. And, and the big difference is mentors give of their time and coaches charge, but you need to surround yourself with people that can help you move forward. Did you ever push, uh, put all your chips into a bet and what was the outcome? Well, uh, I did with, with, as I mentioned earlier, with ranch land was probably the only time I put 100% of it on the table, which was not only all the money I had, but was also uh, my career. When I, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, when I raised the money to start ranch land uh, on a Saturday evening, when I had all but 5% of the money raised, uh, I knocked on uh, my boss's door, uh, head of sales uh, for the 10 state Kodak Southwestern region. And I said, Dave, I'm here to share this bottle of uh, Chevy Salute with you, 21 year old. And while we're drinking it, I am uh, going to resign. And I want you to know you're in luck because I've saved 5% of my new venture for you, which he took. You wrote, don't predict, uh, protect. What does that mean? Well, it, it means, I guess, just what it says. But an example was uh, uh, I sold a company, uh, Healthcare Staff Resources, to a New York stock exchange firm uh, uh, subsidiary. Uh, the New York stock exchange firm was Lifetime. And when we went into negotiations, uh, they wanted to use some of their stock to uh, cover the part of the cost. And it was a several million dollar sale. Uh, I said, that's fine. But in those days, they couldn't give you immediately the sellable stock. And the process took a while. My lawyer said, Jay, you're going to screw up a great deal. And he is a great M&A attorney. He's done my last 14 deals. Uh, that's where we got acquainted on this one I'm talking about. But he said, you're going to screw this up if you don't uh, uh, step back and then accept the stock. The stock's been stable for years. It's been on a slow upturn uh, for years, but uh, it's just not a issue that you should ruin the deal over. Well, I held my guns and they finally agreed that that until the stock they used to buy the deal was tradable, if it should go down, they would send me a check and it was the stock was 42% of the deal. Uh, they would send me a check uh, for the difference between the value of the stock on closing day and where it was 
when it was tradable. Well, when I say don't predict, predict uh, protect, uh, it just happened that shortly after we closed the deal, uh, we were in desert storm and the stock market took a terrible tank. Uh, the result was uh, I got a check for about half of what that stock had been worth when we closed. And uh, by the time I sold it, it was pretty much back to where it was before the war. So uh, does that explain uh, don't predict, protect? Yeah, yeah. For sure. Uh, what do you mean when you write selling a product doesn't have to be about addressing needs? People make decisions based on desire. Well, I love to tell the story. One of the many fun ventures, uh, I just had a few successful conclusions and I decided I wanted to go out and sell handmade, made to measure cowboy boots in West Texas. And a gal that had worked for me in a company out of Tennessee, uh, Katie Barkley, uh, I brought aboard to work with me. She went to uh, the boot company and spent a few weeks learning how to measure and, and work with them. And I got our uh, travel trailer hooked up and ready to go and custom made. We went out to West Texas. We're out in uh, Dimmit, Texas. And we're talking with a, a rancher, and Katie says uh, something about his uh, buying a pair of boots. And he says, honey, I don't need no boots. I got 36 pair of boots. Katie simply said, sir, we're not discussing need. She sold him a pair of white ostrich, whole quill. <laughs> and I guess maybe that's what I mean. You need to sell what people want. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't have a damn thing to do with need. Uh, it, it's uh, filling their desires. I'm sure you had many brilliant people work for you. What did you do to attract and retain uh, talent? Well, I've always felt that, uh, uh, number one, the single most important thing in anyone's life, their career, their personal world, whatever are the people you surround yourself with. So I've always tried to surround myself both in business and in my personal world with outstanding people. Uh, but I have a rule and it's applied and I've had over the years, thousands of employees in various settings. Uh, but my rule is if an employee can find a better job than I can give them, I will help them get it. And, and I think that has been a real piece of strength. The last company I sold, uh, I sold to uh, AKKR. Uh, it was my first exposure to a SaaS company, uh, software as a service. And uh, even though David Hammer, my outstanding M&A attorney, uh, very unbelievably capable. He had never had a true SaaS company. We expected that company would bring, and, and we had no money in it, uh, the dividends and recovered anything we had started it with. Uh, we expected it would bring 10 or $12 million. Uh, 
we sold it to AKKR, and many people will know that company. Uh, they were featured in uh, Barbarians at the Gates. But uh, we got $25 million cash for it. Uh, and when we knew the company was a winner before we sold it, I went out and personally got the two fellows that ran it for me an additional 5% of the stock we sold um, so that uh, they each walked away with uh, with 5 million bucks. We sold it for 25 million cash. And, and uh, I think you simply have to get good people and then make sure that they're treated more than fairly. Yeah, it's that. Anybody would be attracted to working for you if you got them that extra uh, percentage for sure, knowing that you're going to treat them well. Uh, when you're negotiating deal, what's your strategy? Because so many times people either want the deal so badly and overpay, or they're looking for a one-sided deal in their favor. What's your negotiating strategy? Uh, great question. Uh, if if they're looking for a one-sided deal. Uh, I'm probably not involved because uh, I sincerely believe that every deal ought to be a win for both sides. And, and uh, I'm not interested in, in selling or buying a, a company or, or anything else if, if that isn't true. Uh, and uh, so, so I guess that's the, the essence of it. But uh, Ask your question again, so I don't. Sure. Um, when you are negotiating uh, with someone, how do you make sure that you don't maybe get so in love with the deal that you've overpaid for the deal? Or some people want the deal so one-sided that if they don't win and the other side doesn't lose, it's not. A, uh, they feel it's not a good negotiation so what what's your strategy when you're negotiating and you said you have to make it a win-win well years ago i and i guess i'm still a lifetime member of joe mancuso's ceo club and joe had some great speakers uh, our group in dallas was maybe 20, 25 or 30 of us made the meetings but he had herb cohen who herb is is a great negotiator he teaches negotiation and he was a uh, presenter at one of our meeting luncheons. Uh, I've never forgotten Herb. Uh, Herb says he negotiates for one pair of socks at the department store. But but the one line that Herb had that I use, and I, I recently used it with one of our business owner ed grads who was trying to buy some property. And I looked at the deal with him and I said, I believe this uh, kind of recalls uh, Herb's suggestion when you're negotiating. And he says, when you're in a negotiation, care, but not too much. <laughs> as simple as that sounds, I think it is extreme. This young man, I, I drilled that into him. He, he stepped away from the deal and uh, thanked me the other day for the fact that he'd stepped away and ended up in a much better position. So yeah. keep that in mind when you're negotiating. 
the other guy may want to make the deal too. So you want to care, but not too much. You had various boards of directors. How did you utilize them and get the most out of them? And what's the profile of board members to avoid? Well, uh, the avoid is probably a great question because early on uh, with my first big venture, Ranchland, I brought on a board member that was uh, ran the entrepreneurial master's program at a major university uh, that I had uh, presented at several times. And he walked away having been on the board less than a year when we sold with, uh, I think, about $60,000. But he was so carried away with the crossing the T's and dotting the I's that he just almost destroyed getting the deal closed. Uh, so I, uh, I, I think their professors are great if they're teaching history or many great subjects, but uh, uh, I'm really... Uh, not uh, I've seen exceptions. Uh, TCU had one for years. Dave Miner kind of ran the uh, entrepreneurial program, and he was definitely a powerful entrepreneur. Uh, but he had a hold of the purse strings. But uh, I just don't think colleges are the place to uh, to uh, have uh, entrepreneurial training. In in fact, I didn't realize I had it right here in front of me. This is a book called The Hundred Year Education. Rick Sapio, who is one great, uh, great mentor in our business owner program, uh, actually ghost wrote it for a lady that he works with. The book was written to sell insurance, but the first half of it is the greatest presentation I've ever seen that every college or every high school junior and senior should read, as should their parents, because it explains all the reasons maybe you don't want to go to college. Uh, they they tell the story of a young man whose parents were quite wealthy uh, that was in private school all his life, and and when he was in high school getting ready to graduate, all his buddies, of course, were in private school with him. Most of them were going to college. And sometimes it's hard for parents. They feel obligated to send their child to college. Uh, but this young man wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh, ended up setting up an apprenticeship in heating and air conditioning. Uh, today, several years later, he has 40 employees in his heat and air conditioning company, several of whom he was in class with as a high school senior and they went to college. So you need to really decide and and what your course is, and you don't have to go to college in today's world to be highly successful. There's a saying about not putting all your eggs in one basket and diversifying your risk. You don't agree with that. Please give us your thoughts. Well, I talk to so many young people that say, well, I'd love to go out and, and do this or that entrepreneurially, 
but I've got a wife or I've got a wife and children and, and I just don't feel I can. And the truth is, if they've got that much energy and ambition, uh, if they go dead broke, uh, they're still going to be able to put a roof over their family's head and feed them well. And it, at that age, most of their assets are judgment uh, bankruptcy proof anyway, uh, so they, they can recover. Uh, but it goes back to, uh, uh, I told you off, off camera earlier, a friend of mine read my book and he sent me a wallet plaque and he said the the words on that plaque are are the favorite line in your book that I read. And, and the words were, I'd rather risk losing than forfeit the opportunity to win. And, and I think so many people don't take that approach uh, and, and they don't realize if they're young, uh, a, total, a total failure is simply a step backwards. It's not a total disaster. Uh, to me, the only way in the world an entrepreneur can lose is to quit trying to win. You have been married for, I think, over 40 years. How important is getting your spouse to buy in and support your entrepreneurial endeavor? Uh, I think if your spouse isn't on board, uh, you either need to get a new spouse or acquiesce because without that support, life's no fun. And uh, uh, there's uh, you just got to decide what's important. Uh, my, my wife, fortunately, not only has been incredibly supportive, but because I'm so low detail, and in many cases, uh, she has been uh, the, uh, the real, uh, made it work for me. Uh, uh, I'm looking into the book, trying to find the uh, acknowledgements. I, I say a, a loving thanks and a pearl necklace to my wife, Betty. She's been at my side in several of my ventures and has provided many of the less glorious elements of sweat, tears, and long hours required for successfully executing those visions. And, and so uh, it's just totally critical. You wrote, don't allow short-term benefits to be detrimental to your game-winning home run. Be the biggest risk taker in your deals. Why did you write that? Well, as to uh, don't allow short-term benefits, uh, I so often see people that start living personally off of the company and paying for expenses that should be personal out of the company. When they do that, uh, number one, Yes, there is recasting, and a buyer may recast some of those numbers. But if you hide it well, they won't get recasted. And if you don't hide it well, the IRS may want to talk to you. Uh, clean books are absolutely my idea of the only way to prepare a company to sell. Uh, and it, it is just 
critical. Every dollar that you uh, have as expense that doesn't need to be in the company will cost you uh, at least $5 when you get ready to sell the company. Uh, despite recasting, it's an expensive uh, uh, way to go. What is your rule of thumb, which you write about in the book, for concentration of customers? Well, uh, in the book, I talk my rule of thumb is you shouldn't have a customer that is over 15% uh, of your revenue because if you lose the customer, you may not lose the expense you got to support that customer. 15% is a rule of thumb and the different types of business, it could be a little different. I guess a good example, we started the company that I talked about earlier, Healthcare Staff Resources. And when we were first starting it, uh, we had an opportunity to staff Parkland Hospital in Dallas with, with PTs, uh, physical therapists. And I went to our uh, board meeting. Uh, just, we were very small, just getting started. And we had this great opportunity. Well, the next board meeting, they were pushing 40% of our total uh, revenue. And I said, hey, we've got to get it down to 15% quickly. Uh, do what you have to do, but I want us to pass a motion that, that we will not have any customer that represents over 15%. And, and we will, if we have to, lose Parkland, but get this corrected within 60 days. Well, we got it corrected and we lost Parkland. But 60 days later, Parkland sent out uh, a notification that they were no longer going to be contracting with outside companies for physical therapists. So uh, at that point, we were growing fast enough and small enough and lean enough that it then it hurt us to lose them. Uh, we kept on going up and away. But uh, if we had let that stay in place very long, it could have been absolutely disastrous. And, and I think more importantly, or equally importantly, I should say, is you don't want to have a supplier that is a sole supplier. Because if you have a product or a part or anything that is critical to your business and you have one supplier, you're at huge risk. Uh, and Smart Start that I think I mentioned earlier uh, now is in 18 countries, the world's largest with a million eight hundred thousand customers. Uh, that company, I had a CEO in place and I encouraged him for a long time to get a second supplier for our device that we had had built and had manufactured by an outside company that we put on cars that regulated uh, the alcohol level. Uh, I finally explained it to him in a manner that he understood. I don't say this in the book, but I said, you either get a second supplier or a new job. Uh, 
He got one in place. The new supplier in about six months was furnishing a few products for us as we were getting uh, testing them out and getting it going. About that time, our primary supplier didn't have any idea we had another supplier, didn't care, sent us a notice telling us that they were restructuring their entire company and would no longer be able to provide our product. If we'd have had to go without product for six months, it could have been devastating uh, to our company. So concentration, both of client or supply, can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, question from the audience. Do you think you can use the purchasing based on desire, not need mentality to your advantage by educating customers uh, on completely new products in a way that compels them to purchase? Well, let's go back to the fact that you can't create a market. You can only serve one. Uh, the first question is, do you have a new product that there is uh, a market for that people want? If it's an Edsel, you have a hard time. Uh, if it's a, a pair of ostrich boots and we're selling them, uh, probably real easy. So I, I think, you know, and, and the second part of this is uh, like how people never knew they desire an iPhone model until it eventually came out. And Steve Jobs used to say that when he developed products, it wasn't developing products because there was a demand somewhere. He was creating things that he thought they would want because he thought they were cool and that they would want to buy them. What's your take on that philosophy? Well, he, he said the same thing. Uh, he, he said, uh, uh, you can't create a market. You can only serve one. He just was uh, a visionary enough to understand what people would be excited to buy if it was out there. Uh, but he, he didn't build any insoles in those phones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um what is your opinion of business opportunities with artificial intelligence and virtual reality? Well, I mentor an incredible number of people, uh, both uh, individually and through biz owners and uh, through my books, whatever. But the one thing I always tell them is that I am very, very careful not to express my opinion on subjects I'm not qualified, uh, not an expert on. Uh, and that's one I'd be scared to touch as an old man. <laughs> <laughs> when you invest in an entrepreneur, how important is it for them to have capital at risk? And is there a limit? Uh, it is. I don't invest in any entrepreneur that doesn't have a capital at risk. Uh, when we started uh, our uh, GPS tracking company, the one I sold recently, Track What Matters, the DBA was Rhino Fleet Tracking, the one that the AKKAR bought for 25 million. Uh, the number one man uh, put in six months with no salary for his stock. And later when I brought in the second Man, the two of them made an incredible team to run the company. Uh, 
he bought stock for, I think, $150,000, which, as I told you, uh, he bought a little more later, very cheap. But his total purchase, he, he got $5 million out. So, uh, but uh, I, I want people, you know, I say, you know, uh, if, if I cough, I, you need to have pneumonia. <laughs> Uh, I want us in there together, and the only way for that to happen is, is for your key people uh, that have ownership to have skin in the game. And uh, every time I see a situation happen where there isn't skin in the game, it doesn't work. Uh, uh, I supported a guy uh, mistakenly that spent all kinds of money developing a program for goodwill. Uh, and a lady that worked for me, her husband ran the Dallas Goodwill, about $30 million a year business. I talked with him. This company put together a software that was supposed to be just eaten up by the goodwill people. And it was a total flop. And the reason it was a flop was that goodwill did not have any skin in the game. They should have paid for part of the development of that software. They should have been totally committed on, on board. Uh, you just can't give it to them and make it work. Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And um, you know, we thank you for your service to entrepreneurs around the country. Well, let me say the only reason I wrote the bet and it's also available on Audible, uh, is to help serious committed entrepreneurs. Uh, I don't, uh, my money will, all my estate, because I have no children and my wife has none, uh, will go to help serious committed entrepreneurs. Uh, I hope you read the bet and it helps you along your path. Everyone have a wonderful weekend. Jay, again, thanks for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Take care, one and all. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.